0: This morning we're going to continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at the the first antithesis of six. And this one's going to be divided into two parts because Jesus goes into some detail about about this particular one. Uh, Remember as you turn to the passage in Matthew 5 uh, that Jesus is beginning to launch into a description of the righteousness of of the scribes and Pharisees over against the kind of genuine righteousness that is required by and manifested by those who are part of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, We need to keep this in mind as we examine Jesus' teaching here because he's going to let us know here, or he has let us know, that he intends to contrast the false righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes with the genuine righteousness that he demands of us. To get this context back in our minds before we start uh, to delve into verses 21 and 22 here, I want to back up to verse 17 and then we'll read through verse 26. Because verses 21 through 26 are actually a unit, as we'll see, although we're going to deal with part of it next week, Lord willing. So, beginning in verse 17, we read Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So there we have that verse introducing now what uh, scholars call these six antitheses where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, where he contrasts his teaching with, as we've seen here, that of the scribes and the Pharisees. His teaching, by the way, is the teaching of the Bible that they had, what we call the Old Testament that he's been talking about in verses 17 through 20, a Bible that they should have understood better that they should have lived out more faithfully, and they weren't. And so the, uh, the point of what we're going to be seeing as we move through here isn't that they were teaching the Bible and Jesus is adding new revelation. No, they were incorrectly teaching the Bible and Jesus is correcting them. And he's exposing their bad teaching for everyone. And he begins with this first contrast. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Pardon. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And then he gets into some examples of handling anger appropriately that we'll look at next week. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into the prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So we're going to look at those sort of practical examples that he gives of when angry situations happen and a better way to handle them than people might have handled them if all they did was listen to the scribes and Pharisees, right? But today we're going to focus on that first contrast between murder and anger that Jesus is making. Before we do that, let's take some time to pray. Holy Father, uh, I'm reminded this morning of how much I just feel so privileged to be here at Emmanuel. Um, I'm reminded by the conversation we had in our Sunday school period this morning. What a loving group of people that we have here. They love you and they love each other because your spirit is at work among us and we can see the fruit of it. And I am just so privileged that I get to be here and be a part of this church. And I'm doubly privileged that by your grace, I'm called to be one of the pastors. I can't imagine serving a more wonderful group of people than these. Help me to do that well now in this time. Help me to teach them well, to be faithful to your word. We, we need to hear you speak through your word. And so I pray that you will work through the power of your spirit in our hearts to help us understand what it is you want to say to us through your word today. We, we'll give you all the glory for, for what you do as a result because you alone deserve it. We ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's an old Perry Mason episode in which uh, a character got into very deep trouble because he blurted out one time, I'm going to kill him. And of course, then he gets arrested and Perry Mason gets him off because he makes the person really did the killing, confess in the witness stand, which is we know is true to life, right? Um, uh, But there was a viewer of that that said, that's good advice. I try to take it to heart. Whenever I feel like killing someone, I try not to say so. (laughs) Now, I think that that illustrates a truth that uh, perhaps we should all keep in mind, Uh, not that when we feel like killing someone, we should... Avoid saying so, not that truth, Uh, but uh, I think many people maybe have flippantly said in anger that they felt like killing someone, but these same people no doubt think that as long as they don't actually kill someone, they haven't really done anything wrong. In other words, the anger that would make them say something like that is fine, so long as they don't follow through. Jesus has a problem with the anger that would even lead someone to say something like that. And we should, too. We're going to see this very clearly in the passage before us this morning. Um, Because folks like that, who don't have a problem with the anger that might lead them to say something like that, as long as they don't actually kill someone, are really like the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is addressing in this passage. They have, you might say, pharisaical self-righteousness, but not the kind of righteousness that is expected of those in the kingdom of heaven. We'll see this clearly in the passage before us today, and we're going to examine this passage under two main headings, and hopefully you have your notes there. First is the truncated teaching of the Jewish leaders. That is, they cut off some important teaching from the Bible. Uh, And then the true teaching of Jesus that counters that. We see the truncated teaching of the Jewish leaders in verse 21 where Jesus brings it up and says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, and this is a way of re- referring to what the prophets said to the ancient generations who received the law, right? Those That must be what he has in mind because he quotes the law. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now, the first part of this teaching you shall not murder is an exact quote of the Septuagint translation of Exodus 20:13 where the 10 commandments are listed. And I have it in your notes there I think, but for those who have heard or hear a lot, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was commonly used by most Jews and Christians in the first century. It's what is quoted in the New Testament when they're quoting the Old Testament most of the time. And so everybody would clearly recognize this as one of the Ten Commandments, right? The first part of the teaching, direct quote of the Bible. And and he's saying that you've heard it was said, and by from whom? Well, the scribes and Pharisees were the people that were teaching most of the time, right? They quoted the Bible and taught the Bible. You shall not murder. Good honor for that. But the second part of the teaching, whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment, that's not a citation of any particular Old Testament passage. It represents, rather, the common teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, which, when compared to Jesus' teaching that follows in verses 22 through 26, shows that their problem here is not that they're wrong about this teaching so far as it goes, but that they stop short of going any deeper. And, and I, by the way, I think the judgment they have in mind is most likely the judgment of God not just the judgment of their fellow people because even if they had that in mind it's because God wants them to judge it. it's ultimately God's judgment they're carrying out right the traditional teaching focused here upon the more easily kept portion of the law so that they could more easily appear righteous to others after all most people can pretty easily avoid murdering someone I don't know about you But I managed to get through almost 58 years of life without murdering anybody, right? And it wasn't hard, you know, for me to do that. Uh, I found it pretty easy to get through almost 58 years of life without murdering anybody. And so should I pat myself on the back and say, boy, what a good boy am I? I'm not a murderer. I'm righteous. No, because I've been angry enough to kill somebody probably a few times particularly in my B.C. days. That's before Christ, right? Right. Uh, my B.C. days. I was probably angry enough to kill some people a few times. Although I followed Perry Mason advice and didn't usually say so, right? But that didn't make me righteous, not in the eyes of Jesus. This is the way that the scribes and Pharisees handled things. Um. They set the bar pretty low. As long as we avoid murdering somebody, we're righteous people. You know, we're like not like those Romans. They're a bunch of murderers, right? We're the good people. We don't murder people. Of course, they tried to murder Jesus a number of times. <laughs> so they weren't even living up to their own standard of righteousness when it comes to that. But Jesus wants to go further. They, they were trying to make righteousness more easily achievable by focusing on the things they could more easily avoid doing and not going any further than that for the most part. But Jesus, the one who fulfills the Old Testament teaching as we've seen in our previous study, he will bring the whole counsel of God to bear which leads to our second major heading where we're going to spend most of our time and that is the true teaching of Jesus and that's in verses 22 through 26 although today we're only going to focus on verses 22 and 23. It was one of those things where my sermon got so big, I had to cut it down to be able to fit it into today. There are two important points we need to consider about this verse, which says, but, and here's its emphatic, I. Um, When you're speaking Greek in the first century, you don't usually use the pronoun I. It's included in, in the verb, right? It's implied in the verb, And when you do add the pronoun, ego, I, you're doing it to be emphatic. And that's what Jesus does in these antitheses here. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Now, when he emphasizes that the way he does, he's doing something here that people aren't used to. He's saying, what I have to say is more important than those scribes and Pharisees. I'm the one you should listen to here he's the one who's teaching the bible of course he's also the son of god i say to you that who is whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment again there are two important points to consider about what he says here first jesus is referring not to any and all anger but to anger without a cause now This Greek phrase, or this English phrase rather, translates actually single Greek word, eke, which is found in some manuscripts, uh, well actually it's found in the majority of manuscripts, there's some manuscripts in which it's not found, but I think it's original, but let's assume you have a translation that leaves that out, the without cause, but I say to you, whoever's angry with your brother, you don't have the without cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. I'm going to put it to you that if you take this in the larger context, Jesus has to have unrighteous anger in mind when he says this. Because Jesus distinguishes, and the Bible distinguishes, elsewhere between unrighteous and righteous anger. So even if you don't have the without a cause statement that I think should be there, um, it still has to be what Jesus is talking about. He's not condemning all anger. After all, he got angry. God is angry; it's in. Not all anger is sinful. Not all anger is wrong. So Jesus isn't giving a blanket condemnation of any and all anger. He clearly is dealing with unrighteous anger. What, what the Greek text that I have and and, and appreciate in most of the manuscripts says: anger without a cause. Um. So. Whether you have, have that phrase or not, it certainly reflects what Jesus has to be talking about here. And that is unrighteous anger. Because we know, again, that there's a righteous anger that is not sinful. Jesus is a classic example of that. Of course, we could look at uh, the two times that he uh, drove the moneylenders out of the temple If you don't see anger in that, I don't think you're reading the text very well. But here's, here's a text that says right out, plainly, that Jesus was angry. In Mark 3, 1 through 5, you should have all these verses in your notes. We're told he entered the synagogue again, and a man uh, was there at a withered hand. So they watched him closely, the people that were in the synagogue, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, because they felt like healing someone on the Sabbath would be work, Right? And he would be breaking the Sabbath. And that's because they didn't understand the Sabbath any better than they understood most of the rest of the Bible, right? Um, and they did this so, so that they might accuse him. So they're watching him. What's he going to do when this man with the withered hand comes up? If he's going to heal him, we can accuse him of working on the Sabbath and, you know, try to make him look bad. That's what they're wanting to do. So what does Jesus do? He said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And then he said to them, the people looking on. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? They had all their petty rules about what counts as work or not in mind. And Jesus says, is it, is it right on the Sabbath to care about what God cares about or not? <laughs> Human life and well-being? Are you allowed to be like God on the Sabbath? That's really what his question is challenging them with, right? Um... But they kept silent. Well, of course they did, because when you put the question that way, (laughs) no, we think you should be ungodly on the Sabbath. Is the only answer they could give, right? And still hate him like they did. And then we're told, and when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. When Jesus said, I say to whoever's angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment, that's not the kind of anger he had in mind. He was angry with his brothers, with a cause. It was righteous anger. It was appropriate. In fact, the other people in that room should have been as angry at those nitpicky, heretical legalists as he was. And there's a problem if they weren't, right? As John Stott aptly states, not all anger is evil, as is evident from the wrath of God, which is always holy and pure. And even fallen human beings may sometimes feel righteous anger. Although being fallen, we should ensure that even this is slow to rise and quick to die down. We're capable of righteous anger, but usually not for very long. In us, righteous anger turns unrighteous pretty quick. But that doesn't mean we're incapable of righteous anger. I think Stott is correct about that. As the teaching of the apostles makes clear in James 1, 19 and 20, we're told, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Now, if if wrath is a sin... Well, then so is hearing and speaking in this little trifecta of things he's saying here, right? Uh, no, it's okay to hear. It's okay to speak. You should be slow to, right? Swift to hear and slow to speak, but slow to wrath. Sometimes we can tell whether our wrath or our anger is righteous or not by how quickly it has arisen us. Sometimes we can tell that way. He says, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Godly wrath might. Right? But a quick temper, how often does that produce the righteousness of God? Well, James tells us you've got to be careful with that. In, in, in Ephesians four twenty-five through 27, the apostle Paul says, Therefore put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. And then he's citing a psalm there. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So even when you have righteous anger, you've got to avoid sinning. And how, how could you sin, even if you have righteous anger? Well, letting it go on too long. And not dealing with what caused it. Right? Don't let the sun go down on that. Because you'll give a place for the devil to come in and cause problems, because you, grudges start that way. Right? So, but there is a righteous anger, is the point. Jesus isn't condemning this. He's condemning anger without a cause or unrighteous anger. Consider also Paul's praise of the Corinthian church for their response to a grievous sin in their midst. Uh, he had challenged them. There was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. They weren't doing anything about it. They didn't seem to care about sexual immorality in their midst. Paul told them to discipline this guy. They did. Apparently, he, from what we find in 2 Corinthians, he actually repented, which is what church discipline is supposed to bring about. That's what we hope will happen, right? Restoration. But Paul writes in Second Corinthians to commend them for having finally done the right thing. And one of the things they did was right is they finally got angry at sin like they were supposed to. Here's what he says in Second Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And, then he's gonna, and that led to repentance, right? And now he's going to talk about what that was like. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. And of course, indignation is a word for righteous anger. And that's what the Greek word means here. A feeling or strong expression of strong opposition aroused by something that is wrong. right? It's a righteous anger. And then he says also what fear it produced, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. See, one of the problems that they'd had is that there was all kinds of sin in their midst and they didn't care. They didn't even get angry about it at all. And they should have been. A godly sorrow has a righteous anger mixed in with it, right? That's what Paul is saying. And I saw that in you. I knew that you had a godly sorrow because that righteous anger was, you finally got mad at something you should have been mad at sin. As uh, John Trapp, the old Puritan commentator, once wrote, he would be angry and not sin. Let him be angry at nothing but sin. That's pretty good advice, don't you think? So it's clear that Jesus certainly did not mean to say that all anger is sin, that only anger without a cause or unrighteous anger. And uh, that's the way you have to assume he's, that's the meaning you have to assume that he's, he has here, regardless of what text you're following, right? And this is clear not only from his own actions, but from the teaching of the apostles as we've seen. So that's the first thing. Jesus is dealing with, Unrighteous anger. Second, Jesus isn't really saying anything new here. It's not like the people go, Oh, yeah, you know, if you hadn't come along and told us that anger could be sinful, we never would have known. That wasn't in the Old Testament at all. No, heavens no. He's saying something they ought to have known because it was in the Old Testament. One of the, the first murder occurred because of anger that wasn't dealt with properly. That's in Genesis 4, verses 3 through 8. They had this Bible. They should have seen how God warned Cain. We're told in Genesis 4, beginning verse 3 And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain in his offering. For those who think it's the offerings that God was most concerned about, notice it said he respected Abel, he didn't respect Cain. It was the person who brought it that was the issue. Right? It was the hard attitude of the person who brought it that God really cared about. And we're told, and Cain was very angry. And his countenance fell. That means. He went from a smile to a frown. That's the kind of idea here. He looked as depressed as he and angry as he was. So the Lord said to Ken, Cain, Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desires for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain. Talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Where did this sin begin? God didn't confront him because he accidentally said, I'm going to kill him or something. It's because he was angry enough to do it. The anger was the problem. Any reading of this text tells you that. God confronted his anger and warned him about the sin of it. So all they had to do was get to our Genesis chapter 4 to know that anger was a problem in their reading of the Bible, right? Later on in Leviticus 19, 17 through 18, this is a, a passage that a lot of people don't read all of. Um. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Something that the Corinthians finally got around to doing, right? Uh, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Most people know that command here you shall love your neighbor as yourself but they forget the context in which it's said and there are a lot of christians today think loving your neighbor as yourself was you never show anger about their sin that's the exact opposite of what it says in this passage but it also warns about carrying a grudge see you should get angry enough at sin to rebuke it if you love your brother but you should never carry a grudge against him you should be forgiving in your heart right These are the ways you love your brother. These are the things you do if you love your brother. You do what the Corinthians did. They were hating their brother when they weren't confronting his sin and they weren't having indignation or righteous anger at it. And when they finally had the correct, sorrowful, right, repentant attitude toward God that they wanted to do things and love the way God says to love, they finally did the loving, right thing. They dealt with the sin in their midst. They also didn't carry a grudge. He was restored, apparently. We have to keep this in mind. A lot of people have a bad idea of what both anger and love are these days. So that even in Leviticus 19, we see a righteous anger, but also an unrighteous anger. You can't carry a grudge. You deal with the sin and you move on. You don't harbor anger toward your brother if you love him. You forgive him. Proverbs 22, 24, and 25 says, make no... Friendship with an angry man. And with a furious man, do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Scribes and Pharisees knew these passages, but they weren't focusing on them like they should have been. They were probably angry like this all the time. In fact, once Jesus came on the scene, an angry man or a furious man is what most of the scribes and Pharisees were most of the time because they were angry enough at Jesus to plot his death constantly. And they eventually did murder him. Why? Unrighteous anger. So they should have listened to Jesus. They clearly didn't. Notice also that our Lord Jesus said that someone who is sinfully angry toward his brother is in danger of the judgment or as it is in the ESV is liable to the judgment that is such a person is just as guilty of a crime that deserves judgment as the one who commits murder even if anger is not as serious offense as murder is there's a death penalty in the for murder in in God's law in the Old Testament there's not a death penalty for anger and so, if the scribes and Pharisees thought, "Well, anger is not as serious a sin as murder," we're not going to put you to death for it. That doesn't mean it's not a serious sin, though. Jesus says, see, "Here's the thing: it is a serious sin. You can't ignore it, like they're doing." What judgment does he have in mind? Perhaps the scribes and Pharisees, when they spoke of judgment, had judgment before the Jewish authorities in mind. But as I said, even they would ultimately have seen that only as carrying out of God's judgment. I think Jesus for sure has the judgment of God in mind, which I think his letter reference to hellfire seems to confirm. And after all, only God can judge a man's heart. Only he's the one who knows what's in our heart, whether we're harboring anger or not. Sometimes we let it slip out, but God's the one who judges the heart. So I think he has God's judgment in mind. So Jesus not only shows here that the traditional teaching diminishes the demands of the law in order to make it more easily lived, at least in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees, but it also tends to focus on man's judgment perhaps rather than God's. The Jewish tradition, as we've seen in past studies, and we'll see as we move on in the Sermon on the Mount, is usually all concerned about uh, external acts of righteousness, pretty much ignores the heart. That's why Jesus has to constantly point out the heart issue. Jesus goes on to say in verse 22, the first part of the verse, and whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. Now, the word translated Raka here is itself actually just a transliteration of an Aramaic word, which means something like empty one. Empty-headed. It is a term of abuse or put-down relating to a lack of intelligence and is a form of verbal bullying, as one Greek lexicon puts it. As John Stott has pointed out, it appears that raka is an insult to a person's intelligence, calling him empty-headed, and commentators vie with one another in proposing English parallels like nitwit, blockhead, numbskull, or bonehead. I think uh, Martin Luther might have said dunderhead or something like that, right? At any rate, I I think we all get the point. Um, It's a term that is meant as the worst sort of ridicule. So when Jesus said that the person who in anger, because he's talking about doing this in anger in the context, calls another person such a name, when he says that they're in danger of the council, I think he once again has the judgment of God ultimately in mind here. Now, he used the the Greek word synedrion, which we translate as Sanhedrin, because it was a word that was used to, to refer to what we call the Jewish Supreme Court. Their Sanhedrin is made up of the most eminent Jewish leaders, and Jesus had to appear before them when he was put on trial, for example, and some people think that that's what is in mind here. In fact, some translations um, will take the first part of this verse and say the danger of the judgment is a danger of the court. And then the second one is the Supreme Court, the, the Sanhedrin. But I think both have, have to do with God's judgment. Uh, the IVP Bible background commentary says this, the punishments are also roughly equal The day of God's judgment, the heavenly Sanhedrin or Supreme Court, and hell. Jewish literature literature described God's heavenly tribunal as a Supreme Court or Sanhedrin parallel to the earthly one. And and they're they're assuming that Jesus has that in mind here. He's speaking to them in language that they can understand. Um, God's going to judge all this even if you don't, is the point. And I don't think um, that they would have taken somebody who was angry and taken them before the Sanhedrin. (laughs) Maybe they would have for libel, for saying raka or something like that. But probably not, right? This is probably not the level of something that is going to get you there. But God's counsel is what matters. You're going to appear there no matter what. And I think that's what he has in mind, as I said. Now, at the end of the day, it's not going to make much difference which way you take it once again, because at the end of the day, we all know ultimately it's God's judgment that matters. And that's what Jesus definitely is talking about when he talks about hellfire, when he moves on. Um, If he has the Jewish Sanhedrin in mind, um, then he would be saying something like, they they only think murder is important, but I'm telling you, anger is just as important. It's just as serious in some respects. Because it can lead to murder, as we saw in this case of Cain, for example. Jesus goes on to say, in the last part of the verse, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, the Greek word translated fool here, more is the form of it here. Moros is the lexical form. Um, it's kind of similar to the word raka. Uh, but I think he, this word focuses more on lack of respect for God. Um, Raka has to do with intellectual stupidity. Uh, Moray, the way it's used in scripture, has to do with spiritual stupidity, as it were. And that reflects the Old Testament concept of the fool found so often in the Psalms and the Proverbs, for example. So it's possible that Jesus is describing this word, an insult that denigrates a person's Spirituality more so than his intellect. See, biblically speaking, you can be a brilliant person about whom no one would say raka and still be a fool about, about whom it could be rightly said, you're a moray or a moros or moron, right? Spiritually speaking. Um, that's something we have to keep in mind as well. Just as though all anger is not sinful anger, it's not always sinful to say someone's a fool either. But notice what Jesus is dealing with in this context. He's dealing with anger that leads you to call someone a fool. Anger without a cause. Unrighteous anger. You're going to be calling somebody raka or fool unjustly. And out of your anger. So you may not murder them. You just may destroy their reputation in front of everybody in your anger. Or try to. That's the kind of thing he has in mind now. I've said it's not always wrong to describe someone as a fool in the sense of being spiritually daft, right? Having no spiritual wisdom. Uh, That's the sense in which the Bible regularly calls someone a fool. Um, It's not always sinful to say someone is is a fool in that sense as long as it's true. So, for example, Stephen Hawking Many people regard as one of the most brilliant intellects that has ever lived. But he denied the existence of God and ridiculed people who believed in God. The Bible says he's a fool. And I agree. He was. He died. The poor man suffered terribly from a horrible disease for a long time. I feel really bad for the guy. Especially if he's experiencing hellfire. Because he was a fool. That's not my assessment. That's the Bible's assessment. In Psalm 14.1, David describes the person who rejects not the knowledge of God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So if I see someone, no matter how brilliant they are, denying the existence of God and saying that we should deny the existence of God and living like God doesn't exist and pushing all kinds of sins because they don't believe that God exists, I can rightly say on the basis of scripture that that person is a fool. But I don't say that in anger. I say that with pity. Even if sometimes they do make me angry when they say some of these things, right? But in my heart, I have to be forgiving toward them. And love them and want to share the gospel with them. Because if you love your neighbor, you'll rebuke his sin, but you won't bear a grudge because, right? So that's what you do. Um, When Jesus once spoke to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 16 and 17, that's where we have it recorded, he said, woe to you blind guides. He's talking about spiritual blindness here. That fits in with our definition of a fool in scripture. Woe to you, blind guide, who say, "Whoever swells bread, the temple it is nothing." But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, he called them. That's moros, by the way. That's the same word that we see in Matthew five twenty-two, where Jesus says you shouldn't call somebody this in unrighteous anger. But Jesus was showing a righteous anger when he called them fools and blind for which is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. They were being spiritually stupid and Jesus said so. They were spiritually blind and he said so. And he did it without any sin whatsoever. It was true. And he said it, I think, not only for their benefit but especially for the benefit of the people that they were leading into sin to protect them. Love motivated him. He was living out the command to love your neighbor in just the right way there. Uh, Remember when Jesus spoke to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after he had risen from the dead but he hadn't yet ascended? And one of his post-resurrection appearances, we have recorded in Luke 24, and we read in verses 25 through 27, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Uh, so these are genuine believers he's talking to, but are, they're being foolish, and he says so. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his, to his glory? At beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, why did he say that they were being foolish? Because they were ignoring the scriptures. And that's foolish. That's being spiritually stupid to do that. But here, here you have less anger, and more gentle, loving correction, right? Paul, when he spoke to the Galatians in Galatians 3, oh, foolish Galatians in Galatians 3.1, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? See where foolishness is coming in again? Rejecting God's revealed truth. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Notice what foolishness is again, spiritual stupidity. How stupid, spiritually speaking, is it to think, having begun in the spirit, you can go on and be sanctified in the flesh? How spiritually daft do you have to be to think that? How spiritually blind do you have to be to think that? Paul is saying, you Galatians are apparently that foolish right now, if you're even entertaining this notion. If you're even giving these people a second hearing, you're being foolish. This is a a pastor talking to a congregation, you might say, in love. One more example from James 2, 17 through 20. And this is toward those who would distort what true saving faith is. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe that and they tremble. But do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? You can't go on saying you have faith in God and it never shows in a life of faithfulness to him. That's his point. Anybody that thinks that is foolish. Notice in each of the examples given, a couple of things about the term fool that I've tried to point out. First, in none of these cases was it applied in a fit of, anger as some kind of retaliation. Even if Jesus had anger, he wasn't just being mean-spirited. And second, in each case, the term was reserved for those who reject the true knowledge of God or in some way distort the truth of the gospel or the Christian faith or the word of God. And of course, of those who are so spiritually dense and slow that they just won't believe God's word. Now, we shouldn't go around immediately calling every unbeliever. We know you fool, right? Jesus didn't do that. The apostles didn't do that. In fact, the people that they seemed to reserve the word for weren't just your rank her- unbeliever, right? It were for religious people who professed to know God. It were this. It was. It was for scribes and Pharisees. It w- it was toward the Galatians who were toying with work salvation. It was. James, where he was talking to people who were thinking about doctrines that undermine the truth of the gospel. It's people who ought to have known better that they like to aim the word fool at. And we should keep that in mind if we're going to use the word. Although, I don't think it's wrong when you find someone who is a rabid atheist and who has a big name and who's trying to lead the world into atheism to say that man is a fool publicly is not a wrong thing to do. So, Jesus isn't talking about just calling someone a fool. It's that unjust anger that leads to these words. Being unjustly, unbiblically applied that seems to be the issue that he has in mind. So, it's possible to refer to a person as a fool and do so righteously, as long as it's not simply a way of retaliating against them, or just trying to be mean. And so long as it actually really applies to those to whom the Bible applies the word. We can't redefine who this applies to. We have to do it biblically. And someone who in anger unjustly calls someone a fool, Jesus says, shall be in danger of hell fire. You scribes and Pharisees, who think, as long as you're not murdering people, you're doing okay. Yet, in your anger, you will call people names like this. You're just as in danger of hellfire as the guy who murdered somebody. On this earth, you won't get the death penalty. (laughs) That's not the last judgment. The last judgment's coming, and that's in hellfire. Hellfire. Jesus says. And that's got to be, again, a reference to the final judgment as it is everywhere in the New Testament where it's, where it's used. I think uh, Kent Hughes was on the right track when he wrote, Jesus is not suggesting a ladder of offenses that result in progressively sterner judgments, as if anger gets a minor judgment, raka, rocker, rocker, a stiffer penalty, and fool, hell, Right? He is simply multiplying examples to make his point, which is the way I take it. In all three cases, the judgment of God is what you're going to get. And Jesus is just giving examples of what he means. And, of course, all that animosity, he says, in the end, can land one in hell. And that's true. Thomas Constable is also helpful when he writes, Jesus said the offender is guilty enough to suffer eternal judgment, not that he will. Whether he will suffer eternal judgment or not depends on his relationship to God. There does not seem to be any gradation or progression in these three instances of anger. I agree. Jesus simply presented three possible instances with an assortment of terms and assured his hearers that in all cases there was violation of God's will that could incur severe divine torment. I agree with both of these gentlemen in the way that they take this. So Jesus is talking, he's moving from the unrighteous anger itself to the unrighteous words that it can lead to. The anger itself is sin, the unrighteous anger, but it can also lead to unrighteous angry words, which are also sin and all deserving of hellfire, just as murder is. So you people that think with the scribes and Pharisees that you can have that kind of righteousness that manages to get through life without murdering anybody and you're fine, Jesus is saying, no. No, you're not. Don't listen to them. The Bible says anger, unrighteous anger is a sin. They should have known better. In conclusion, maybe it'd be helpful to offer an account from the ministry of an early 20th century evangelist about how anger can be a problem. A lady once, we're told, came up to Billy Sunday and tried to rationalize her angry outburst. She said, there's nothing wrong with losing my temper. I blow up and then it's all over. So does a shotgun, Sunday replied, and look at the damage it leaves behind. See, people try to justify their anger. Some people think the best thing to do with anger is to vent it. That's hardly ever the right thing to do with anger. (laughs) Unless it's venting it in confession for the sin of it before God, if it's sinful anger, right? As Maggie Scarf once wrote in a New York Times article... Getting angry can sometimes be like leaping into a wonderfully responsive sports car, gunning the motor, taking off at a high speed, and then discovering that the brakes are out of order. Yeah, anger's like that. That's why you don't let the sun go down on your wrath, Paul said. That's why if you love your brother, like it said in Leviticus, enough to rebuke his sin, you're careful not to carry a grudge. I think our Lord Jesus would have agreed with those sentiments for he saw unrighteous anger as a very serious and dangerous sin and he doesn't want us to be like the hypocrites who thought that they could be as angry as they wanted and it was no big deal they justify their anger like that woman who came up to Billy Sunday I feel better because I've ended my anger so it should be fine what about the person you called raka or fool unjustly? What about the child you spanked in anger too hard? What about other people you're supposed to love? What about them? That's what God wants us to think about loving our neighbor. We have to remember the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about isn't something we can sort of muster up in ourselves. Like through the power of positive thinking or something like that. No, it has to be a gift from God. Only God through his Holy Spirit can make us righteous. He's the one who has to do this work in us. So if you struggle with anger and you feel convicted about that today and you're even mad about how angry you've been when you shouldn't be, which would be a good kind of anger, then that's the Holy Spirit bringing you uh, to conviction for your sin and then to ask him to forgive you and help you to overcome. And he will. He will. I used to be a very angry young man before the Lord saved me. I was angry at the whole world. I didn't love anybody but myself. I didn't know it at the time. I thought love didn't exist. I thought love was something that people made up to make themselves feel better. That it was a fantasy and that people wrote books about it and made movies about it and pretended it was real so that they could feel better about living in this horrible world. That's what I thought about love when I was 12 and 13 years old. That's how jaded I was. I actually felt that way. I was angry. I was angry at my parents who'd hurt me so badly. I was angry at my siblings who weren't there for me like I thought they should be. They were kids for crying out loud, right? Like me, they were as wounded as I was. I was angry at the religious people in my life that tried to talk to me about the love of God and I would think, are you kidding me? I was angry at everyone and everything and then a, a perfect father came into my life. He gave his son for me. And he showed me what real love is. And with it, all my anger started to go away. The key in the end is to go and find the love of God. That's the answer. Christ can take away your anger and then he can redirect it to only the things that should be focused on. Hopefully I get mad about one thing now, my sin, and hopefully I stay angry at that. That's what I'm working on. I hope you will too. Let's pray. Holy Father, its it, I hope that I've been able to share I've tried to be faithful to the whole counsel of God in, in showing what our Lord Jesus must have been saying here, what he what he had to mean. We want to be like him. That's what real righteousness is. It's modeled for us by our great God and Savior Jesus Christ in everything he ever said and did. And there are some things we'll never be able to emulate because we're not sons of God by nature like he was. We're sons of God by adoption. We're not God. And there's some things that he did we cannot do. But what we can do is learn to have righteous anger and to shun unrighteous anger like he did. Like he demonstrated for us and modeled for us so perfectly. Help us to love as he loves us. Help us to love others that way. And help us, Lord, to learn to combat sinful anger so that we don't harm other people around us. Help us to be genuinely righteous with the righteousness that comes from your working in our hearts and to shun the hypocrisy of people like the scribes and Pharisees. Lord, we'll give you the glory for what you do as a result. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention. I hope it's been helpful to you.